You're on. Here's some okay. And I am on nine. Nine. Okay. Family house in house tent floor. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts. I consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Okay. Let me uh, hang on one sec here. I'm getting information from Sergio right now. We've had some technical problems over the past week. So he's live on Facebook. He says he's checking YouTube right now. And uh, it, YouTube changed our ID without telling us. Yeah. And so we've had on. Oh, we're live on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. He got it fixed today. Let me. Might as well tell him thank you. Seeing as how we're already T H A. N K Y O U. That'll make him feel good. Thank you, Sergio. Okay, there we got that. And we'll go ahead and read this day in Christian history before we get to today's August 22nd. Thou wilt show me the path of life. Uh, Mariana Slocum, born in Philadelphia in 1917, was the daughter of Stephen Slocum, a university professor. Hers was a godly home. She recalls, I cannot remember ever not believing in Christ as my Savior. We were a church going church-going family. Father asked the blessing at every meal, and each night we had family worship. During her junior year of college, Mariana felt God calling her to be a missionary Bible translator. After completing her education, she began linguistic training in 1940 at the Summer Institute of Linguistics and joined the Wycliffe Bible Translators. As the Summer Institute of, or at the Summer Institute of Linguistics, Mariana met Bill Bentley a Wycliffe translator who had been working among the Tzeltzal Indians of Mexico since 1938. He was a college graduate who had initially planned to go to medical school, but had gone to Moody Bible Institute instead. At Moody, he had heard L.L. Ledgers describe the need of unreached tribes to have the Bible translated into their native languages. Responding to the need, he had joined Wycliffe and gone to the Tzeltzals, Mariana felt herself falling in love with him, but he didn't single her out for any special attention. Mariana and a co-worker were assigned to the whole tribe and took up residence at a coffee plantation just a day's hike from Bill Bentley's headquarters among the Tzeltals. Since Hull was a Mayan language similar to Tzeltal, Bill made the long day's hike frequently to help the two women with their translating. On one trip, Bill brought a large box of cookies for the girls, and at the bottom of the box was a large heart-shaped cookie for Mariana. Ooh, the love was mutual. In February 1941, Bill proposed and Mariana accepted. They set their wedding date for August 30th and planned to hold the ceremony in the Slocum home in Philadelphia. That summer, Bill and Mariana returned to the U.S. for the final week of busy wedding activities. On August 22, 1941, they drove from Philadelphia to America's Keswick near Toms River, New Jersey, where Bill spoke at the evening service. The next morning, they went to New York City, where they enjoyed a day of sightseeing hand in hand. That night, on the trip back to Philadelphia, both were exhausted but jubilant. 
in spirit as they talked about their wedding exactly a week away. The next morning at the Slocum home, Bill was late for breakfast. Mariana's father went up to call him but came back alone. Bill had died during the night of an undetected congenital heart condition. He was just 27. Mariana's parents immediately called Cameron Townsend, the head of Wycliffe, in a daze, Mariana asked if she could speak to him. Her voice barely audible, she asked, may I turn to the Tseltzals in Bill's place? The answer was a yes. Bill, you know, I read this in advance, so it wouldn't bother me, and it still does. Bill was buried in Topeka, and Mariana went on alone to the Summer Institute of Linguistics, arriving on August 30th the date she and Bill were to have been married. The verse that sustained her was Psalm 1611. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. She returned to Mexico alone. Mariana and her co-workers completed the translation of the first Tzeltzal. New Testament in 1956 and of the second in 1965. A leading Mexican magazine wrote that she had lifted an entire Indian nation from barbarism to civilization. Mariana could only say, thank you, Lord. Sorry about that. I tried to get that through me earlier, but it obviously didn't work. What people are willing to do for the word of God, that's yeah. well, the thing. Also, the thing, Charlie, is it didn't shake her faith. Didn't shake her faith at all. No. That's what the word of God does. It's got transformative powers. And you know, I'm sitting here reading this for the second time and thinking how people belittle the word. Mm -hmm. They treat it shamefully. They act as if Jesus is just another guy, another path to heaven. And one woman who loses the love of her life goes and changes an entire nation of people. Anyway, we've got some prayer requests. Graham is still in great pain over in uh, Scotland. And he also asked prayers for his uh, Genjo's mom. She's in a very bad way. And they also have some financial concerns, probably because he can't work and he's got all these medical bills, but I'm gonna keep him in prayer. And then Becky in Colorado is still asking for prayers. She's got two or three things that are just really debilitating going on. And then Sam Lesho, I mentioned him on Sunday. He's got sepsis and he's on 60 days of antibiotics. And so we want to make sure he's in prayer. And then we have uh, Liz Smith is going to Uganda and she's asking for prayers for her work there. She's been there before and the last time uh, she was there, they, the village they were at had a child sacrifice just when they were there. Yeah. And then the uh, pastor of her church, took the malaria medicine and it made him sick. So, I mean, we'll hope that nothing like that happens on this trip to Uganda. Is but she, that where Isaac is? Isaac is in Uganda. So I've asked to see where she's going. Maybe they can hook up. I don't know. It's a big place. And then Brian, Kathy and Barry Highland are all Catholics in need of Jesus. And so we've been asked to pray for them as well. So let's go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to pray for these people and the others that are out there that have needs that are either written in 
my failure to write them down myself or that are unspoken and they're just in their own need. And we would pray that you would search the hearts and situations of all the people that are attending here that have loved ones that may not know Jesus or may have fallen away from Jesus or whatever. Lord, you are in control of all things and we know this. And so we would ask that you would just give healing and comfort to these people and uh, uh, especially the spiritual healing, those that don't know Jesus above all, because we can be so comfortable in our religion and not know Jesus at all. And Lord, we certainly thank you for people like this lady that was willing to continue on in her life of ministry as far as the uh, translation of the Bible is concerned. And what a noble job that is. I can't think of a more noble job on this planet than people that go into remote areas and actually translate your word because they're handling the most precious gift that you have ever given us apart from your son himself. And so, Lord, we pray for any of our missionaries out there that are doing this. Ray and Jess Willett are just getting started in Papua New Guinea, and they're going to be doing exactly that. We pray that you guide them and help them through those difficult times where they're going to face, no doubt. And Lord, we just ask that you bless this time and bless our handling of your word. And we would pray that it would be in accord with what you intend for it. And if there's anything that isn't proper, that you would just lead people to a right understanding apart from this study if it is wrong. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we've got uh, 13.5, but you can start wherever you want. Okay. Back a couple or whatever. Let's back it up to the you saw, just 13. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, fathom all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I have gained nothing. nothing. For love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, not boast, is not proud, is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight. Oh, sorry. Okay, um, a little differently worded, so I'm going to read it also. It does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. And now that I've got that behind me, I want to read their reflection on uh, what I read earlier. I just couldn't go on. Uh, how do you respond to tragedy? In spite of her incredible heartache, Miriam, Mariana Slocum was able to continue on by holding on to God. Jesus was her Savior, and the Holy Spirit was her comforter. There are they are therefore all who believe. And then they cite Jeremiah 31, 13. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and exchange their sorrow for rejoicing. Okay, 13, 5. Four more traits of the nature of true love are given from the pen of Paul in this verse. Now, you weren't here last week, but I got about halfway through this and we had to quit because I got long-winded talking about something else. But, um, so we're redoing the first couple paragraphs of my commentary. Um, if someone is truly loving toward another, there will be no improper conduct towards that person. There will be due respect for the individual, regardless of societal class. There will be an attitude of care, regardless of nationality. The amount of money or the type of home a person has will not be a consideration in how that person is treated. There will always be a tone of decency and propriety in one's conduct towards others. If these are lacking, then the true heart of love is also lacking. 
Love also, as Paul says, doesn't seek its own. Instead of self-gratification, there will be a desire to look out for the benefit of others. How often do we attempt to ingratiate ourselves with someone who is well-known or who possesses a certain talent so that we can seem more esteemed in the eyes of another? This isn't true love, but rather it is identification with someone for personal benefit. To seek the well-being of others for, this, for the sakes of their well-being without any regard for self shows that the heart is properly directed in that relationship. Love is also not provoked, as Paul says. Some translations say easily provoked, but this statement is in the absolute sense, and so adding the adverb gives a false sense of Paul's intent. True love overlooks faults, mistakes, misunderstandings, and the like. Rather than being offended or exasperated, love will stand firm and remain strong through the offenses which come from time to time. Love will not allow itself to be provoked. And finally, Paul tells us that love thinks no evil. Instead of looking for others' actions as suspect, and rather than finding evil intent in how people present themselves, love will accept the approaches of others in the best possible light unless there is a sound reason to consider them differently. This is not a naive attitude towards others, but it is giving them the benefit of the doubt in their conduct and action. In life application here, there are times when we are to carefully consider the actions of others as being suspect. We need to do that. We got to be discerning. The Lord Jesus told us to be as and as Wise. wise as serpents, that's right, in our interactions. And yet we need to balance these considerations with a loving attitude. Because we cannot read the hearts and minds of others, we should give them the opportunity to demonstrate their faithfulness without being rude or curt in the process. Sounds like something I heard at the beginning of our uh, sermon before I opened. I mean, the person that opened last week was talking about being rude or curt to others. Uh, and uh, I... Uh, I've been Who thinking that about guy? that all, I don't know, but I've been thinking about that all week long. Really? I've been actually chewing on it. Really? The, the first words that he said were, uh, the person that came up and opened us uh, on Sunday said, I, apparently it's okay to be to belittle, uh, what was it, servers at a restaurant if you're a Christian. And I've been, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that either, but uh, apparently some Christians feel that way. And I've been thinking about that all week long. That's meditating on yeah, well, it's not just that, it's meditating on the concept from the word, because afterward he explained that's not the appropriate way. I, I think, well, I won't say, but one of the people in the congregation thought he was being serious when he said it, and uh, he was beginning out with an application. I saw this this week, and it's not okay, is the whole point, but yeah, I'm thinking of that all week long. Yeah, oh yeah, just, you need, you know... I'm at 7-Eleven, right? And I'm at there every day. I got my old dirty pants on. I got paint all over them. And the ones I wore today actually have a hole in the back. But, I, you know, I have a shirt that's long enough usually to cover it. But uh, I'm out there, and, and there are people that come in. And I see basically a lot of the same people every day. And you get the Mexican ladies that come walking. They get off the bus. And I treat them exactly the same as the lady that her husband is a knee doctor who's done several of our knees in, in this uh, church here. And... To me, they're all just the same. And then 
a lot of people come up and, hey, Charlie, how you doing there? And other people looking like, who's, you know, how does he know that guy? You know, and so anyway, it, it just, it, there is a place where you have to give people the benefit of the doubt before you make judgments. And I'm so glad a lot of the people that come in there every day did that. They gave me the benefit of the doubt because otherwise, you know, there are people that think I'm a bum and they hand me money. And I, but I, like I tell people after they get to know me, I'm not going to put on a tuxedo to clean this place. This is filthy, and I'm going to be really filthier when I leave here. So, you know, but anyway, it, it, I just, you got to treat people the way that you would want to be treated, regardless of how they look when you first see them, or regardless of what their job is, you know, because it's so easy to take advantage of somebody. And like I said in the commentary, it is so easy. Anytime somebody meets somebody famous, the first thing they do is get a selfie with them and post it on Facebook, like it exalts them somehow. It doesn't. You're just getting a no. picture with a famous person, but it's like, I met Stephen King, you know, or whatever. I met, um, you know. <laughs> oh, I know. The guy's insane. But anyway, I just, he came to mind because I was at uh, Spanish Point last week and we looked over at his house and I said, Stephen King li lives over there. And that's kind of the same thing. I'm like, like, see, we're, we're better than everybody because we got a famous you know person. What? But, I, I bumped into him. oh, yeah, you I told me at the pet, pet food he will place. Not look you in the eye. I believe it. Yeah, he's a spooky dude, that one. He is a spooky guy. Anyway, let's go. Go on. 13 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Okay, this one says, does not rejoice in iniquity and rejoices in the truth instead of within. Um, now, in the Hebrew, you'd have a much greater difference. You have the word evil, which is ra'ah, and then you have the word iniquity, which is avon. Here, they've translated one word two ways. So we'll see uh, what we have here. 13.6. In this verse, a contrast thought is given. This is similar to how many of the Proverbs are structured. For example, Proverbs 14, verse 9. Let me take you there, and we'll see what. why did I pick Proverbs 14, verse 9. I, you know, Psalms and then Proverbs. Hang on. Proverbs 23, 12, you what? Yes, fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is favor. Yeah, well, that's that was a close one. That's right. Um, let's see here. There's a way of showing both a negative and a positive side of the same thing. In the case of love, it does not rejoice in iniquity. In other words, love doesn't revel in that which is wicked. Now, I just took iniquity and equated it with wickedness, which is the two words I just said from Hebrew, ra'ah and, uh, or ra, not ra'ah and um, avon. So uh, when someone does something perverse, harmful, or deceitful, a person who is truly loving won't stand back and applaud what they have seen. By doing so, they will only bolster the wicked intent of the wrongdoer and propel them on to greater wickedness. The only possible result of this is a bad end. Love also doesn't rejoice in the consequences of wickedness. Where was I? Uh, when a person is punished for their wickedness, a possible outcome of the previous scenario, there should be no reveling in their downfall, but rather mourning and a desire for their restoration. Such is the nature of a loving attitude, even towards those who have acted in iniquity. In con you know, I read that and I say that, and I have to admit that our previous president, I didn't like the guy. And I think to myself, and I do this even now, a couple weeks ago I was working and I thought, you know, I, I just wonder if, if I could still get the gumption in me to pray for him and say, I'd rather see him saved than not saved. You know, I mean, there's just such, such a negative connotation with even seeing him or seeing his 
how he treated this nation and the wicked things that he did, it's very hard for me to get myself to pray for him. And yet I'd rather see him saved than to go through the consequences of not being saved. So I can read this here, but do I apply it to myself? And I really have to think about that. And like I say, I'm out working and I'm mowing lawns and stuff. This is the kind of stuff that goes on in my small brain. In contrast to this is that love rejoices in the truth. So you've got, it doesn't do one thing, but it does do this. Where there is truth, love will rejoice in it, even if it is a tough pill to swallow. If someone's child has committed iniquity, a truly loving parent will be more satisfied in their conviction and punishment than they than that they got away with their wrongdoing. And that's that's tough to say. But you know, I was in a church one time and the pastor said, you know, your child doesn't know the Lord. Are you willing to say to the Lord, whatever it takes, Lord? Whatever? It, would it take him being paralyzed for the rest of his life? Would that be worth it to you? Would it be worth him going to jail? All of these things. Would you be willing to do that for him to turn from his iniquity and become a saved believer in Christ? And the answer has to be yes, because if not, you are not rejoicing in the truth. So, but it's hard, especially when it's your child and you don't want to see any physical or any other type of pain come to them. But uh, this doesn't mean that there is a pleased demeanor in their punishment which would belie what Paul just said in the previous point, but that it is better to see the iniquity punished than for it to continue. Also in this thought, Paul's words are more correctly stated that love rejoices with truth. In other words, love and truth are being personified. This is a common biblical way of demonstrating to us the very character of these traits in a way that we can then apply them to ourselves. A good example of such personification is found in Psalm 85 with these words. Let me see here. Psalm 85 and it's verse 10, which says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. It's a wonderful verse. It goes on. I got to read it because it's so beautiful. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Marvelous. It's a, speaking of Christ there. Anyway, um, life application. Paul's words today in this particular verse, if properly applied to our lives, will often ask us to act in a nature contrary to what our initial emotions may hint at. We wish to protect those we love, even if it means keeping them from some type of correction that they deserve. But in this, we are only harming them, not truly helping them. And we might be saving lives. Remember the prophecy update two weeks ago, the grandmother that called her on her grandson who had said, I'm going to go kill a bunch of people. They had bought an AK-47 and she called the police and she stopped him from committing mass murder, which he would have done. And she was right to do it. It must have been tough, but she did it. Anyway, it is better to have the consequences of one's actions meted out than to find them in an even worse position later because they didn't learn their lesson the first time. So, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Okay, this one is way different. Bears all things like a weight, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay, continuing on with the attributes of love from the previous verses. Once again, as I said last week, uh, you want to keep thinking of uh, people that are getting married because I read this 
at more wedding ceremonies than any other passage that I've read and or any other thing that I've read other than do you take this woman to be your wife? I can't think of anything I've said more. In a, what's that? Uh, yeah, what, yeah, man to be your wife, woman to be your, yeah. Okay, whatever. Thank you. I'm glad you said that. See, I do that all the time. I, I get one thing in my head and I just carry it through. Peter is Paul and Paul is Peter in my head. Thank you. Yes, do you take this man to be your husband? Do you take this woman to be your wife? I don't know what I said, but whatever I said obviously woman, wasn't right. Woman. A woman to be your wife. Um, yeah, that's right. Do you take this woman to be your wife? That's correct, isn't did I, it? Did I mess up? You might have. I, we can go back and watch it. I don't know. You got me confused now, but I do that from time to time. I, I will say something thinking one and I'll say the opposite. And that's, you know, believe it or not, Chris Chris will tell you this is true. It's what? Oh, uh, Chris will tell you, you know, I, I have dyslexia and I'll read things backwards a lot. Well, I think what I'm, I'm, you know, you're seeing your words as you're speaking. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm, I'm actually, and I do it all the time. So this is something I do. So I'm so glad people you, catch me on that. Is that why you like reading Hebrew? Oh, yeah, because you're reading backwards. It's much easier to read that backwards. Um, okay, anyway, um, uh, people getting married. And so as you're reading this, think because this is what people are basically committing to each other. I promise to do these things. And then the, the thing about love is read. So think that while reading this as well as analyzing the Bible. Okay, continuing on with the attributes of love from the previous verses. Paul now mentions four more of them. First, it bears all things. This is the Greek word stego. It means to cover closely. It is used in the idea of keeping water out. A well-made rain suit is designed to keep the contents within it dry. A ship's hull is made in a way which keeps water out in order to keep it from sinking. Where is that recorded in the Bible? That's right. Noah, he used bitumen and he sealed the ark. That's absolutely right. Actually, it's uh, um, the term used is it's pitch. That's right, bitumen or pitch. But uh, the term used is kafir, which means it's the same word that means atonement. He, it was making a picture of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. We may wear a mask or even a full body suit to cover ourselves if there are germs present. The idea here then is not to disclose the faults or troubles of others, but instead to cover them and protect them. To act in a loving manner means to bear the burdens of others willingly, keeping them tightly sealed in the process. Love also believes all things, as Paul says. This small portion of the verse could be misread in a way which would lead an individual to state to a state of naivete, thank you, which is unintended. The best way to interpret Paul's words here is that Christians should give the benefit of the doubt to others. When questioned about forgiveness, Jesus responded in the most gracious manner. The exchange is found in Matthew chapter 18, where he says, uh, let's see here, verse 21, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a, oh, I'm sorry. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall I, uh, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And then Jesus gave his answer. I started with the wrong verse. Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. However, Jesus always, always, what? 70 times seven. Yeah, well, it depends. The translation will say either, yes. It, it, some translations say 77 times and some say 70 times seven. 
So yes, you got to get. Is it from the NU text or is it from the Byzantine? The, uh, you've got the Alexandrian and the Byzantine. This well, we don't know. That's why they have the different texts. Text. Yeah, it means a whole lot. But it's a superlative. Either way, it's a superlative. Um, can we help you, ma'am? Yes. Um, let's see here. We have now mom showed up. I couldn't believe it. Four minutes early today. She was so early. I was standing by the door. I, I snuck around the corner and I was holding the door with two fingers and she pulled on it and it wouldn't open. So she started to get out her keys to unlock it. Oh and goodness. yeah, I was so surprised mom was here on time, but somebody else is a couple minutes late. Um, so anyway, we have, um, where was I? Um, he hopes all things, uh, endures all things. Where was I? What are we talking about? Um, what verse are you? Seven. Seven. Okay. And um, let's see, endures. You said something, it got me off on a track, and now I'm, com I'm completely off on that track now. Okay. Finally, Paul says that love endures all things. If the preceding attributes in this list, no. I've got to continue on. I, I did not finish that. I read, read Matthew 18, and then you asked about the 77. That's where it was. That's where we got off. It either says seven times 70 or 77 times. That's right. It's a superlative. Okay. However, Jesus, oh, here's what I was going to say right when you got me. What is it that Jesus always does when he talks about forgiveness? Always. Because Christians will say, and this is a point that I really get upset about, and I've had people many times email me and say, where, where do you get that? And I will send them my thing from, I have a thing typed up on it. When he talks okay. about what? When he talks about forgiveness. Because people always say, you must forgive them. You must forgive them. And that is, go ahead. Okay, they, they have to be... They have, to ask for they have to ask for forgiveness. There is no time in the Bible, one time in Mark, it seems to say it, but if you take it with the exact same account with Luke and Matthew, then you'll see he always, always ties in repentance with forgiveness. Christians are not required to forgive unconditionally. That is incorrect. That is bad theology, and it has led a million people down to very sad paths. When I put this out, people feel self-righteous, email, and they say, well, that's not true. You have to forgive everybody and because they're better than everybody else. But then other people will email me and they will say, I have such a load off of my shoulders today because I have carried this burden for years and years and years. I've always been told I have to forgive this person. No, you do not. You can forgive them. You can say, I forgive you. Unless they accept it, though, they're not forgiven because you can't you can't forgive somebody that doesn't one feel that they've done you wrong or two accept the forgiveness. But the good thing about the people that argue with you about yes, that, they'll forgive you. They'll forgive. Yeah, they have to forgive me because they're still arguing their point. But the fact is, think of a verse that you. Go ahead. Forgiving everyone, just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. But we ask when to get. That's exactly right. People will use that and they don't think that through. How did God forgive us? He forgave us because we came to Jesus and we said, Lord God, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Okay? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Okay? Were they forgiven? Was the nation of Israel forgiven for crucifying Christ? Obviously not because they went into punishment for 2,000 years. Right? He asked the people that for crucified him for the forgiveness at that time. Not carte blanche that once you have come to your senses, you have to continue on in the state you're in. And that was proven by the resurrection, okay? 
I don't care what verse you send to me. I have got it typed up. I will send it to you. The thing that I've typed up, you are taking that out of context. If you believe that you have to forgive and everybody, God forgive. and God yeah, will not forgive, you are placing yourself and other Christians on a higher standard than God, because God does not forgive everybody. Okay, that is inappropriate. It is bad theology. So because they don't ask. Once somebody asks and says, "I am sorry. I repent." Jesus said it. You have to forgive them. You have to forgive them because they have asked and you don't read their heart. God does, but you don't. And so you are required to forgive somebody when they come to you and R-E-P-E-N-T. Other than that, you are not required to forgive everybody unconditionally. Okay. So that's what I was going to get into when you uh, asked or when you made your statement. Okay. So without repentance, one cannot truly forgive anyway. And so there is a balance needed in such actions. In the case of love, there is to be an extra effort made to believe others in order to keep the bond of love alive. Paul proceeds with the notion that love hopes all things. That's his next one. Rather than being gloomy and pessimistic about the future, about relationships, about finances, or any other issue, a truly loving person will demonstrate hope. God has made sure promises to his people, and therefore we are to demonstrate hope in those promises, even when things seem to be falling apart around us. I'm not trying to say that you should not be unhappy in life and that you, you can't, you know, something happens and you bang your toe or somebody steals a million dollars from you and you had a million and one dollars in the bank. Those are things you really get upset about. But in the end, you have to say, Lord, this was no surprise to you. I am not going to let this ruin my life. You, it can ruin your 10 minutes. It can ruin your, your week. I understand that. But you should not carry your woes for yourself or for the things that happen around you on and on and on and on. Because that's showing a lack of faith in Christ who's given you promises that he has something better for you. Lord, I am going to endure through whatever you have handed me. I am going to accept it and I am going to move on. And that is very difficult to do. Don't get me wrong. It is really hard to do, but the Lord has made his promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is there with you through it. He hasn't abandoned you, okay? And even if the rest of your life, like that lady lost her uh, at the beginning, of she lost her fiance. She's supposed to be married in a week. She understood that God is sovereign. He had a right to call that guy home. He knew that this was going to happen, and he also knew, I guarantee you this, that she would do a proper translation of that Bible and that those people would come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and he wouldn't have her, something like that. God knows. We don't. But he called him home because there was something that would not have been right with his plans and purposes, and we have to accept that. So if you are continuously carrying yourself around with your knuckles dragging by you and you're just a pity party around everybody then you are not demonstrating faith in the Lord and in his promises. Let it go for a while and then let it go, okay? The reason, once again, I know that's hard. I know it is. There are times where I get really upset. He will tell you that. And I just, I'm frustrated, but I get up the next day and I say, well, we're just going to move on, right? The uh, reason for this is that a truly loving soul will, by their hopeful attitude, keep others afloat in a sea of hope as well. Without such an attitude, others will fall into their own gloom and depression. You've got a, a father in the house that's gloomy and depressed. What are you going to have for gloomy and depressed children? You're going to bring them down. The wife is going to be gloomy and depressed. If you've got an uncle that's always moping, the last thing you want to do is go over to his house. 
you might do it because it's the right thing to do, but it's just not something that you don't want to be gloomy and depressed, right? I hate to say it, but when somebody on Facebook is always gloomy and depressed, I don't want to see their posts. I don't want to see them. I love to see the people that are happy and sure they have bad times. I'm in the hospital right now and you know, I, I got my leg cut off and, but God is good and he's good all the time. You, you, you can see something there, but when somebody is just a downer all the time, it really is debilitating to you as a person. I, I, does anybody disagree with that? Okay. Um, let's see here. Um, without such an attitude, others will fall into their own gloom and depression. Finally, Paul says that love endures all things. If the preceding attributes in this list last only a temporary time, then they have ultimately failed the test of love. Endurance is an ongoing and an essential attribute for any display of love. To endure in love is, in and of itself, an aspect of true love. In enduring all things, complaints are avoided, help is provided, hope springs eternal, and comfort is given. You think of the person that married the, uh, you know, the track star at school or the what do you call it, the homecoming queen at school, and something happens to him. He loses his legs in war, and she sticks with him through it. Or she gets into an accident, her face is marred, and he stays with her through it. You know, I heard a story one time. I can't remember. I think it was in a movie, but it may have been true. I, I remember hearing this. I I'm, will tell you what happened, and I don't remember if it was true or not, but it's, it's something you think about. Um, guys in Vietnam, he uh, uh, gets shot up, and his fiance comes to the hospital to see him, and she took took off her ring and left it there, and says, "I I can't marry a guy like you." And that was the end of that. And then it was a true story because I remember that now. It was a true story that another person was in the bed next to him, and his I think it was fiance. She may have been a wife at that time. Spent the rest of her life taking care of him, and he could not take care of himself. And the difference between the two, right? So there you go. Love endures all things that's why we say we're in love is because we are willing to endure all things all right uh, and once again this is a volitional act of the will that's the love that this is speaking about it's not speaking about the emotional love that you feel today and don't feel tomorrow because there have been many times where hitiko and i have not been in love but we have still been in love right everybody got that there's never been a time that we haven't been in love even though there have been times where you know, I'm the type that gets really angry really quickly. You can probably tell that. A-type a personality. And then five minutes later, I am over it. It's done. Three days later, she's still angry at me, right? That's just the way it is. We're, we're different people, and we each have our own way of handling things. But in the end, she never fails to make dinner for me, even when she's mad at me, right? So that is a volitional act of the will. I'm going to love him despite my anger at him right now, Okay. So that's what so, this is speaking of. Yes. So we'll keep on your thought that we think of our wedding vows at the same time as this. It, it does encapsulate that. In one you sense, bet. It says, for better or for worse. For better or for worse. Richer or poorer. Sickness, sickness and in health. Thank you. That is, that is absolutely right. And that's why when it says it endures all things, I don't know how many of those people that I married are still married. Because a lot of people just, they came down to Sarasota and they asked me, would you marry me? Okay. But... I would hope that they would have thought those things through. I just had a friend that I went to high school with, you know, even before that, we've known each other since junior high at least, and she got married. I married her in the backyard. Edika was one of the witnesses, and they needed two witnesses, and so I had to go next door. They were doing construction at the house, 
Okay. And I went over and I said to him, would you come and witness? Oh yeah, sure. So he gave the employee five minutes off and he came over and witnessed the wedding. Okay. But he just died about three weeks ago. He was up at Manatee Memorial Hospital and she sat there with him constantly. She slept on that bed with him. She never left his side until he died. Not once. No, he wasn't old at all, but he had some physical problems. And yeah, so, I, you know, it, it is sad, but at what point are you going to say, I am going to live out the vows that I have been given, right? When dad had his stroke, he was in the hospital and moved into that room and never left him. Not one time did she leave him. So, you know, it, it, what are you willing to do as far as love? A volitional act of the will, not the emotional love, okay? Light application. The essential thing about the love that Paul speaks of it is that its attributes are, here it is, volitional. They require more than just a temporary emotion, but rather they demonstrate a mental attitude, which is of the will. It is as if a race is set before us and we prepare ourselves for it. Start off with the right attitude and persevere through the challenge as it unfolds before us. I keep thinking of Hedica while I'm reading that because she has done that. She says, there's a long race ahead of me and there's obstacles and she's got one after another and she keeps beating them out of the way. Man, she is the she volition. She that fish in your soup and you eat it. I, whatever she gives me, I will I will eat. Yep, <laughs> such is the nature of love. I'm telling you, I'm reading this and I'm, I'm thinking of her the whole time because she has put up with more grief than any person on this planet. Okay, 13.8. Love never fails, but there are prophecies. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Okay, very close, but one of them is different. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail instead of cease. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Paul now takes a new direction in his great discourse on love. He's been giving both positive and negative descriptions of love. They have been descriptions which define love and which are forever unchanging in the truth they convey. He will now contrast this with the nature of gifts which have been given to the individual members. It must be remembered that this discourse on love is given based on the previous discourse on gifts. He is specifically connecting the two issues to show the supremacy of love over that of gifts. Properly used gifts are dependent on love and will be based on love, but love is not dependent on gifts. As he closed out chapter 12, he said, and I will show you a more excellent way. The more excellent way is love. And why is this true? It is true because love, which he has just been defining, never fails. The use of a gift is perfected in love and when love is displayed in the use of a gift, it will always be used for the benefit of the entire body. It will not be self-serving. If there is a gift in the church and it is self-serving, it is not being properly used. All right. But whether there are prophecies, Paul says they will fail. Prophecies, both foretelling and forthtelling, have their limits. There is a time when the gift of prophecy will be ended. There will be no more need for future prophetic utterances, and there will be no need for searching the mysteries of the Bible and explaining them to others. When this time comes, guess what? Love will still exist, for God is love. Paul next tells us that whether there are tongues, they will cease. Tongues are a way of conveying information. That's what they are there for. At one time, there was but one 
tongue or one language on earth. However, in order to effect his purposes for man in redemptive history, God divided the tongues of the people. There are now many languages, and there is a need for tongues to be used to teach others the word of God, to build up those who speak a different language, and to unite churches into a cohesive body. However, someday there will again be but one language spoken. The book of, anybody, where there's one tongue, one lip, I will perfect the lip of the people. What book of the Bible is that? Zephaniah 3, verse 9. Let me see here. Let me get that out. Micah, I, hang on a second here. Zephaniah 3, verse 9. It's a small little book, and it's going to take just a second to find it. Yes. Behind Malachi? Before Malachi. Okay, thank you. So you got... Okay, before Zechariah. No, no, no. Zephaniah. There we are. No, that's Habakkuk 3, 9, and then Zephaniah 3, 9. Here it is. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Wonderful verse there. Okay, um, let's see here. Where was I? The book of Zephaniah says that will occur among the Hebrew people during the millennium. Okay, eventually all humanity will speak in one tongue again. When this occurs, there will be no need for instructing others tongues will cease, right? Now, right now, we have pretty much a universal language on the planet. What is that language? English. It's English. Okay, when you fly into an airport, doesn't matter what airport you fly into in the world, you will be speaking in English because that's the way that the world is run right now, okay? That may be changed to Hebrew someday during the millennium. I don't know, but right now, English is, you fly into Papua New Guinea and you go into their commercial airport, you better speak English because that's what they speak. Now, when Russians fly into their own Russian airbase, they're gonna be speaking Russian, obviously. But if they're gonna fly into a commercial airbase, they will need to be speaking English, okay? So eventually, oh, I said that. Finally, in this verse, Paul tells us that whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. He speaks here of earthly knowledge. It is the knowledge possessed by the teacher who must then instruct his pupil. Again, let us remember that he is contrasting love with the possession of gifts. Teachers, scholars, pastors, and so on, all possess certain knowledge which must then be shared with others in order for that knowledge to be assimilated by them. This type of knowledge will pass away. In its place will be the pure knowledge which was from before the creation of the world. There shall be no need for the gift of knowledge, because we will be in the presence of the one in whom is all knowledge. We shall learn for all eternity the workings of God. Thus, the gift of knowledge will vanish away, but love will remain. Life application. When all of our gifts, which are given by the Spirit for this earthly dispensation, are brought into the presence of the Lord, they will no longer be needed. In their place will come the perfection of all of those gifts directly from the one who bestowed them. The wonders of heaven are beyond our ability to grasp. And so let us cling to this now and share our temporary gifts in love and in harmony with those we fellowship with. Are you saying that we're going to know everything? No, 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 no. What he's talking about is the knowledge which we pass on. I am a pastor and I'm teaching you things about the Bible right now. That won't be necessary because we will have the source of all knowledge, where that knowledge comes from, okay? what And Paul says it, knowledge will pass away. What What is he talking about? Because there will always be knowledge. He's talking about the transmission of knowledge from me to you, from teacher to student, 
in that or how, teaching another language. We won't need to teach another language. The knowledge of language will be in our heads. If we don't have the knowledge of it, it will come from God. Okay, we will not know all things. We cannot know all things because we're finite. Okay, a finite cannot attain the infinite. And that's why when we think of God, we will never know everything because God is everywhere. He knows all things. And so he will forever, forever and ever, no matter how much we know, no matter how much we learn from God, there will still be an infinite amount left to know. Now think of that. We can, we can learn from God for the next 10 jillion years, and we will still have an infinite, infinite amount of knowledge yet to learn. Because he is infinite, we are not. We can never attain to the infinite. So it's very hard for us to grasp, and that's why I say this is something that's even hard to communicate. But Paul says it. He says knowledge will pass away. So what is he talking about? He's talking about our ability to teach others. It must be because teaching is a yeah. gift. There you go. We won't need the gift of knowledge so or teaching. Just say, you come to my teaching on Glory Avenue and I'll know these things. You can ask me then and I'll know them. I don't know how it's going to work. All I know is that Paul says that there will not be, need, be the need for the gift of knowledge. Okay. okay, we won't need to transmit that somehow. I don't know. Maybe we can plug ourselves into something and just learn what we want to learn. I don't know. But there won't be the need for the gift of knowledge. And that's talking about the conveying of knowledge. You know, okay. when you mentioned that he gave all these languages there at the Tower of Babel. Yep. Uh, all these Genesis chapter. Recognition of the, the one language and they spoke in Japanese or right. whatever, German or whatever they spoke then. That was all taken away in an instant. It was. It was taken, and they got it back in Acts chapter 3 or 2, didn't they? In an instant. So God can do it. How he does it, I don't know. How he retards our mental faculties so that we can't attain certain things, I don't know. How he inspires people to do things that were never thought of before, I don't know. But he can do it, and he did it in Genesis 11, and then he turned it off, turned it on again in Acts chapter 2. Absolutely. He's God. He, he, he took away the gift of knowledge in that respect at that time. And it's going to be the same thing, but it's going to be on a, a full level at that time. That was just a temporary thing that he did for them. I don't know. All I know is that he will have us plugged into something so that we will be able to fulfill what Paul says right here. Anyway, what's that? It will be him. That's right. How he's going to do it, I don't know. But that something will be him. That's right. 13.9. Or... We know in part, and we prophecy in part. Okay. It is good to remember that Paul's words here were given based on divisions within the church because of the possession of various gifts of the Spirit. In verse 12, 28, Paul listed prophets as second in ranking only behind apostles. This then is an indication that the appointment as an apostle was limited only to a select few in the early church. All right, it confirms what we said in those previous verses about it being apostles who were de designated as such by Christ. Okay, I said it then, I'll say it again right now. There is no such thing as an apostle of Christ today. If you see somebody claiming that title, you can tell them they're wrong. Okay, and this verse right here shows us that. And so instead of showing the limitations of the position of an apostle, he shows the limitations of the next highest ranking appointment, the prophet, one which would continue on through the age. Prophecy in this case is being tied to knowledge, and therefore it is the speaking of the gift of foretelling, not foretelling. 
Forthtelling is speaking out the word of God as it has already been proclaimed. Foretelling is speaking out the word of God which has not been proclaimed. This is the former. Forthtelling is what I do in the, the uh, pulpit on Sunday. It's what I'm trying to do right now, not so eloquently on Thursday night. Forthtelling is communicating the words of God when, or I'm sorry, foretelling is communicating the words of God when directly influenced by the Spirit. That's what charismatic churches claim to do, okay? On the other hand, forthtelling is a gift which is based on knowledge of what God has spoken. Truly, no one can fully comprehend the depths of the Word of God. If anybody says, I've got the Bible down, they ain't, okay? Even when studied day and night for a lifetime, there will always be more that can be learned from it. Always. Because of this, Paul says that we know in part and we prophesy in part. This doesn't mean there's a certain defect in prophesying, but that it is never fully complete. 2,000 years of preaching has not used up the well of knowledge or fully plumbed the depths of what can be preached. God's word is a useful tool at all times, in all languages, and for any circumstances in any culture. It is wisdom, it is direction, and it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. However, there are aspects of God which are not recorded in the Bible. There are events in human history which pertain to biblical prophecy, and yet they can only be determined to fit the prophetic scenario once they've happened. Others will become evident as they prepare to happen. But no matter what, our knowledge of the events is limited because the future is not fully known to us. For these and for a host of other reasons, our knowledge is limited and our prophesying is incomplete. So why did Paul include this statement? It is because the gift of prophesying is an incomplete gift. The prophet cannot claim all knowledge or all ability. He is dependent on others who possess other gifts. He is one part of the body, and he is not the head. Again, when taken in the context of Paul's discussion about various gifts, the reason for this discourse on love becomes evident. The one who prophesies without love is truly just a clanging symbol who is puffed up and in and of himself. To prophesy with great knowledge but without love is to be ineffective at prophesying. And I can tell you that if you go to seminaries all over the world, certainly in America, but I'm sure everywhere else, you will find this type of knowledge. People that have a lot of knowledge and they don't have any love and they're arrogant. I'm telling you what, there are a lot of arrogant professors in Christianity. They're to the extreme, to the extreme, okay? And that's why so many people are disaffected when they leave seminary. It is unbelievable how these people, these infections get in. How many seminaries were started in America? 5,000, 8,000, 10,000? I guarantee you that 99.72% of them started out, we believe in the word of God. It is the literal inerrant word of God. And they, they take it and they, they define it. And they say, this is what we are going to proclaim in this seminary. And 40 years later, they're already down the apostasy avenue. And by the time you get to 200 years later or 300 years later with Harvard, they don't even teach the word of God at all. They diminish it. They tear it apart. And yet there are people in there that are Bible scholars, Hebrew scholars, and all they do is tear apart the Word of God. It happens in every single seminary, and it's not intentional. They started out on the right track, and they went down the wrong path because of arrogance of people that think they know more than God. That is what this is speaking of right here. It's what? Evil. Oh, it's evil. Absolutely. 
Life, you know what? I think of the seminary that I went to. It's only been open for a dozen years, maybe. I don't know, Southern Evangelical Seminary. Go look it up and tell me. Um, uh, they haven't been open that long. Norman Geisler started it. And he started it exactly as any other seminary. This is going to be up based on the Word of God. And you know what? In 10 years, it's already good. Maybe even now it is. I don't know. May already be going down the tubes because they need to fill that position. They don't have the right person. And we have to fill it for the next uh, semester. So we'll take this person and we'll just be tough on him, right? And the guy gets in there and he starts infecting. I'm not saying it's happening now. I'm just saying they will happen. This is what happens because it's the way of the world. It is. It's very sad. Life application. The preacher who possesses great knowledge in the word of God should be even more humble than when he knew little. With greater understanding of the word of God should come a greater understanding of how little one really knows of the word of God. I, I tell you that all the time. Every single week I go in there and I start a sermon and I think I'm going to go down one path and all of a sudden I think, my God, this is unbelievable. And all of a sudden I'm taken down a path I had no idea about. And it doesn't happen one week or three weeks a year. It happens 52 weeks a year. And I'm talking to the Lord through it and there are times where I'm so excited I got to stop and I got to call Sergio, right? I don't want anybody calling me on sermon day, typing day, okay? I, because I got something on my mind, and if the phone rings, I'm telling you, I, I can lose an hour of thought just because of that. So, you know, I always, I never turn off the phone because if there's a real emergency, I need to have it on. But Mondays, I just, they're the, they're the most precious part of the week for me. And every week I come out thinking, Lord, I'm so grateful for this word. I, I just treasure it, right? And it, I find out exactly that that's true. The more I know about this word, the more I realize I don't know that much about this word. And it gets more with every single week that goes by. Uh, you know, and I'm already thinking about how am I going to, I'm listening, you know, in the car to Judges, and I'm reading in the morning the book of Joshua, and in the evening I'm reading the book of Deuteronomy. I think, I, I think that's where I'm at with the three right now. And I'm already thinking, how am I going to preach on that one in Deuteronomy? And what am I going to say about this? Because I don't understand what he's talking about in this Judges. What is that picturing? I'm already thinking that. And I've got another, what, 10 years before we get into Judges? I, but it is such a rich treasure. Anyway, this weekend, the inauguration of Joshua, it's going to be a little complicated. I won't lie. You have to pay attention if you want to understand what I'm saying. But it'll be clear enough if you pay attention or you read it a second time, you'll get it. There are marvelous pictures of the law and of Christ in there. Marvelous, marvelous pictures of what is coming in the law and in Christ. Okay, I'll give you just one so you can think about it because when it comes, I'll be talking and you're like, what's he talking about? Okay, Moses represents what? The law, that's right. Does the law enter the land of promise? No. no, the law cannot save anybody. There will never be a time where the law can enter. Enter Joshua. What is he picturing? What is that ordination picturing? When it says somebody to lead him out and lead, uh, when he comes in and goes out and when he leads the people, when they come and when they go, what is that speaking of? I'm telling you every, it's all speaking of Jesus, every word of it. And then even the mountain range that Moses is going up on, the Abarim, guess what? It's the exact same word as Oberim and it's the same word as Ivrim. They're all three different words, but they're spelled the exact same way. And there's a reason for that. Pay attention. It is really marvelous. Anyway, we'll go on. 13.10. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Okay. 
That was fast. It I didn't was. even read it. Um, yeah, it. This one says, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Okay, a little more wordy, but we'll see here. Paul here speaks in an overall way concerning that which is imperfect in comparison to that which is perfect. As long as there is imperfection, that is all uh, that is truly perceived. But when something perfect comes, it is completely overshadowing of the imperfection. This is even true in gradations of perfection. As an example, we can think of the development of the internet. And it's funny that this came out because just yesterday I was typing up, um, what was I typing up something and I needed pictures. Oh, for the prophecy update. You'll hear it on Sunday why I was speaking about the internet. But I had to look at pictures of the internet from 10 and 15 years ago. Really? You'll laugh if you look at them. I mean, what we have today, I can sit there and I can watch videos and they're you know, HD, I can almost put my hand into the mountain range and the, the balloon going up look, looks like it's right in front of me. Ten years ago, what did we have? Dial-up modem. You know, it's unbelievable. Anyway, so here we go. It's funny that this commentary came out today. Um, where was I? Uh, imperfection. Um, do, 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 do. Um, Oh, yeah. Okay. The language was, it first began with a single connection between two computers. The language was slow and very limited. Eventually, a larger network was developed and less perfect system was overshadowed by the better. In due time, the internet grew into something that anyone could access, but it was limited to dial-up modems using the landline phone system. Along came higher speed landline systems and they swallowed up the slower ones. Then came, anybody, what came after that? D. DSL, that's right, DSL, and people forgot about landlines. It was like, landlines? And now DSL, if we had that, we'd be shooting ourselves. Oh, right? And people forgot about the landlines. Then came cable, and after that, fiber optics. Each step replaced that which was less perfect. The old systems were done away with. Such is true with the gifts of the Spirit, which we now employ. The giver of the gift is perfect, but we are imperfect. Our prophecies may miss the mark. Our tongues may mispronounce words as we translate languages. And our knowledge is riddled with misunderstanding and misevaluation of spiritual matters. However, someday there will be a perfect unity between the giver of the gifts and the glorified saints. There will no longer need be a need for that which is lesser because that which is perfect will swallow up the imperfection in its own perfection, just as dial-up modems have been dispensed with and forgotten. I can't wait. All that which is in part will be done away with, as Paul says, in part will be done away with at that time. This is the hope of the saints. It is the anticipation of the redeemed, and it is the joy which is set before us because of the work of Jesus Christ. His perfection will be realized in us. We ourselves will not be God, but we will have a direct and unstained access to that which is perfect. We shall walk in his presence and see his glory illuminating our path for all eternity. I can't wait. Man, if that trumpet blows today, I'm jumping to be ahead of you. I'm going to be up there before you, that's for sure. Life application. At this point in time, we perceive all things from a faulty perspective. This is because we are fallen, and thus we often misperceive spiritual matters. However, this doesn't mean that we should sit on our hands and wait for our glorification before seeking out perfection. We should always strive to learn more from God's Word. 
and we should attempt to commune more closely with God at all times. And we should fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our model for perfect living as we walk in this fallen world. Oh, I can't wait. Can't wait. 1311. We'll probably be done uh, before uh, 530 or 630. But whenever we're done with verse 13, we'll stop because it's the end of a chapter and it, it's a logical place. So we'll see. Go ahead. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Okay. In this verse, Paul is making an analogy between spiritual immaturity and spiritual adulthood through the use of the natural growth of an individual. He's been discussing spiritual gifts and the need to use them in connection with love for them to have any true value. In the previous two verses, he showed that eventually those gifts will be done away with altogether. In his analogy, then, he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. Babies have their own sounds, which develop into short sentences and then into the talk of teens. Each is discernible and it shows a lack of development. Eventually, though, most people learn to speak as adults. Sentences are more complex and they convey the higher thoughts which are necessary to accomplish the challenges of adulthood. In a similar fashion, Paul says that I understood as a child. Children look at the world in a completely different way than adults. Adults have had experiences which allow them to hopefully make wise decisions. We don't see that very often when we read the paper, but we, it does happen from time to time. Children don't have such experiences. They may touch hot surfaces. They may get swindled out of their school lunch, or they may step on sand spurs because they didn't know that sand spurs existed. Anybody that doesn't know what a sand spur is, if you've never been to Florida and you step on a sand spur, it's a little ball. It's a little ball and it's got 10,000 little things and they point in different directions. So no matter which way you step on it, there's no way to pull it out without pain. It Because you pull it one way and it'll poke in another. And the way that you get a sand spur off, I'm going to tell you this. Does anybody know how to get it? Well, one, mom is right. You lick your fingers. That helps. And then secondly, if it's on the bottom of your foot, you roll your foot. You, you Don't pull it out with your hand because it will hurt like the dickens. But if you take and roll it off of your foot... That will do it. You can actually run through sand spurs. Stop. Yes, you can, as long as you're rolling your foot oh, as you go. Yes, like that is how you do it. But they wait, don't wait, stick wait, wait, wait. Foot, right? They're not going to stick in my foot. Yeah, they will. The sand spur. You're like leather, no, leather they will. They'll stick in my foot. Yeah, but, yeah armadillo they foot. Stick, they stick on the bottom of your Oh, they will. They'll get in there. Yeah, if you don't roll your foot when you're walking over, they'll go right into the bottom of these pads. No doubt about it. Yeah, well, that's true. They They do. Anyway, okay, so where are we? Um, they uh, touch hot surfaces. They get sand spurs in there. Okay, their understanding of the world around them has limited their ability to think in more developed ways. And this leads to the next thought of Paul, which says, I thought as a child. Without experience, thoughts will be naive about the world around us. Without a developed language, our tongues will only speak either unintelligible or rather simple sentences. And without experience, we cannot make rational choices about our future, how to care for our present needs, or how to empathize with others when they suffer. In contrast to this, Paul tells us that when I became a man, I put away childish things. This state is analogous to what he said in verses 8 through 10. The connection is obvious when it looks at how Paul has cited his examples. I spoke 
relates to the gift of tongues. I understood relates to the gift of prophecy. And I thought relates to the gift of knowledge. You see what he's doing? He's taking these three and he's tying them to the last three verses. Paul showed us that in those previous verses that each of these gifts were temporary and would be done away with. Thus, he has equated that time of spiritual maturity to being a man. In adulthood, we have put away the ways of a child. And in our glorification, we will put away these lesser gifts. See what he's doing? He's just making, he's tying it up and he's putting a, a bow on it for you. Isaac Newton, one of the greatest intellectual minds in, in all of human history and also who is voted every single year as the greatest scientist who ever lived. Every year they have that vote. And they want to know who are the greatest top 10 scientists. He's always number one, Isaac Newton. Okay. He understood this to be true when he wrote these words. I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself, I seem to have only been like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself by now and then finding a smooth pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. The smartest man ever to have lived, as far as science is concerned, says that all he was doing was picking up pebbles. Picking up pebbles. You also said that science is thinking God's... Johannes Kepler. Oh, that's a different... Johannes different Kepler. Genius. Yes, okay. different genius. Science is thinking God's thoughts after him. That's right. Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler. These were all Christian men. Isaac Newton wrote much, much more on theology than he wrote on science. Yes, much more. Volumes more on theology than he wrote on science. And yet he's the greatest author of scientific discovery in human history. And yet he wrote more on theology. He did. He spent half of his time in the book of Daniel trying to figure out the ages when Christ would come and when all these things would come about. Think of that. I think Newton was the one who said he thought that there were different codes in the Bible. Oh, yeah, he, 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 he searched for codes in there, and he absolutely, but he didn't have, you know, the uh, insight that, uh, like, Sergio can pull out things with the acrostics now in, in a few minutes that, you know, he didn't have a computer. that's right, he didn't have a computer. He had dial-up. He had dial-up, yeah, he only had dial-up back in, that's right, life application, those gifts which we cherish now, and which we too often use to the harm of others rather than to their edification will someday be done away with. Thank goodness. Keeping this in mind, let us use our gifts for building up others, not attempting to tear them down. 312. Uh, oh, go ahead. First John, I should have done this on 10. Said, uh, how great is the love that the Father bestowed upon us. We are now the children of God. It's not appeared what we will be. That's right. We know that when he appears, we'll be like we him. We will be like him. Yeah. Absolutely. Because we'll see him just as he is. So. Unbelievable. We're going to be like Christ. We're not going to be Christ. We're not going to be gods. You know, people are starting to teach these crazy things about the word Elohim. And I got to tell you, it's a very dangerous path. And it's wrong. I mean, I've had several people send me... Uh, uh, this one guy that's teaching about the word Elohim, gods in the Old Testament, and he makes these conclusions which are completely wrong. I, I went and answered one one time. I didn't save it. And I wish I had because I just cut and pasted what I sent to him. Completely wrong. Be very careful when people start Do discovering not, new things. They not understand what like yeah, like, like, the word like. That's right. Similar. Okay, 1312. Now we see but a poor reflection is in a mirror. When, then we shall see face to face. Now, I know in part, 
then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Okay, almost the same here, a little different, but let's see. Paul has been contrasting the imperfect world in which we live with the purity of the world to come. He has been doing this by comparing that which is temporary and physical with that which is eternal and spiritual. With that thought in mind, he now gives a description of what our knowledge is like at this time in comparison to what it will be like in the future. In order to do this, he uses words concerning a mirror, which would have been perfectly understood by anyone in the church at that time. However, in his words, he is certainly using an example from the Old Testament as the basis for his thoughts. Here's what it says in the book of Numbers, chapter 12, he says this. Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Is that what? Yes, it says here. Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? All right, the Lord spoke those words to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Knowing that this is Paul's point of reference will help to explain his words to the Corinthians. He begins with the word for as a conjunction to the previous statement. What is earthly will be explained first. In this earthly existence now, he says that we see in a mirror dimly. Mirrors of Paul's time were made of, that's right, highly polished metal highly polished metal. They reflected an image, but it was far less perfect than our modern glass mirrors. What is our modern glass mirrors made of that makes the reflection? Silver. Silver. It's a very thin sheet of silver in the back of that. If you save enough mirrors and break them and melt them down, you'll have a little bit of silver, okay? It's very little silver, but it is the silver which makes the reflection, okay? They reflect an image, but it was far less perfect than our modern glass mirrors. When looking at such a mirror, just as when looking at a mirror of today, it appears that the image is standing on the other side of the mirror. But the reflection in those ancient metal mirrors would have had imperfections, which skewed what a person actually looked like. They could get the general sense of how they looked, but it wasn't perfect. Hairs which were out of place may have gone unseen. Lipstick might have been a wee bit off. And the teeth might not have been as clean as one hoped for. Especially if it's a brass mirror, because then it's the same color as your teeth. Such a mirror wasn't capable of giving a perfect reflection, and so imperfection in actual appearance was to be expected. Paul shows that this is comparable to what is spiritual. We now see God's plan only partially. We now study the Bible with preconceptions and using faulty logic. Our minds are dull in understanding many aspects of Scripture, and we are incapable of seeing some things which would otherwise be obvious. But in this earthly existence, they are hidden. In contrast to this, someday we shall see, as Paul says, face to face. In Numbers 12, verse 8, which I cited, the term the Lord used when speaking to Moses is pay-el-pay, mouth-to-mouth, literally mouth-to-mouth. There was a direct and intimate dialogue between the two. The Lord hid nothing from Moses when he spoke to him. This is the way it shall be for us when we are glorified. Until then, we still see dimly, and our understanding is therefore obscured. The word dimly is from the Greek word en Animati, animati. It means an enigma. Everything is somewhat obscured in some way or another. Again, this is comparable to what was said to Moses with the words in dark sayings. 
when God spoke to the prophets of old, his word was given in such a way that they often had no idea what God was speaking about. You see that again and again in the Old Testament, and it's actually explained perfectly in the New. It was as if a dark shadow were cast over their eyes, the eyes of their minds, to keep them from fully realizing what was intended by the words they uttered or wrote down. This is no different even today. Although we have clarity that the prophets didn't, especially about the work of the Lord Jesus, there are still aspects of the Bible that are completely hidden from us. I wish, wish these prophecy people would stop speculating on things which are meant to be hidden and not to be revealed until they occur. We can understand the surface meaning of the words, but the true depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God, which is found in the Bible, is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. This is confirmed in Paul's words, which continue on by saying, Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. We have the Bible, and with it we can know how to be saved through the work of Jesus. It also tells us about the sure return of Jesus for us someday. But it doesn't tell us when that will happen, nor does it tell us an infinite number of details that we might like to know. Instead, with it we can only know in part. However, when we stand in the presence of the Lord in our glorified state, we will have a much more perfect understanding of the Lord and of his work, just as he at this time fully knows about us. Life application, just because we cannot fully know all the mysteries of the Lord in this life, it is no excuse to not do our very, very best to study the Bible and seek out the mysteries which are hidden there. What a shame to spend our time learning an infinite number of sports statistics while knowing almost nothing about the riches contained in Scripture. Learn your Bible. 1313, and we'll be done for the day. and we're, It'll be right on time. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Okay. Paul concludes his discourse on love in this verse by beginning with, and now. Among scholars, there is a division over what this means. Some take it as a temporal sequence, which would place it in opposition to the then of the previous verse. What that would mean is that now isn't speaking of our present existence in comparison to the future, such as, and at this time, abide faith, hope, and love, but someday only love will abide. Instead, it is speaking of the logical nature of the summary thought. It is the conclusion of everything he has said. And now, when every other gift is done away with, faith, hope, and love will remain. Other scholars will argue the opposite by stating that only love will remain in the future. Faith will no longer be needed because it will be swallowed up in sight, and hope will no longer be needed because we will have possession of our hope in the joy of the Lord. Thus, only love will remain. You see, there's a difference. The first argument is correct. All three will remain. They are all permanent and they are all essential, even in the eternal state. What Paul is telling us here is that the gifts which the believers at Corinth had been arguing over were temporary, and that they would pass away even gifts such as prophecy. On the other hand, the three individual components of faith, hope, and love would continue on forever. If eternity is set before us, and yet our eternity is based on God's willingness to maintain his created order, then our faith will remain in God who contain, continues to sustain the existence. See that? You still have faith in that. Tied into this is hope, which will always remain as an anchor for the soul of the redeemed. It will never find its completion, but will always exist. Because God is infinite, 
we will infinitely hope to see more of his infinite goodness as he ceaselessly reveals himself to us. Hope is not discounted. Despite these being eternal, though, the facet of love is greater than they are. It is not greater in duration, which is impossible because all are eternal, but in logical order. The pulpit commentary explains why love is greater than faith and hope in four ways. One, this isn't my comment, this is the pulpit commentary. Love is the greatest because it is the root of the other two. We believe only in that which we love. We hope only for that which we love. Two, and love is the greatest because love is for our neighbors. Faith and hope mainly for ourselves. Three, and love is the greatest because faith and hope are human, but God is love. And four, and love is the greatest because faith and hope can only work by love and only show themselves by love. Thus, love is as the undivided perfection of a sevenfold light. Faith and hope are precious stones of one color, as a ruby and a sapphire. But love, as he has been showing us through the chapter, is a diamond of many facets. That was beautiful. Thank you, Pope of Commentary. Life application. Paul has, been, has shown a more excellent way in 1 Corinthians 13. Rather than arguing over who has the better gift, and rather than having feelings of either jealousy or contempt towards others because of their gift, we should express gratitude to God for his provision and demonstrate love towards God and others as we await our final call to eternal glory. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much for 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which without this short passage in scripture, we would have a giant void in our understanding of what it means to love. And help us all our days to be loving in the way that it says here. I know it's an impossible task for us because we're fallen, we get angry, we get short-tempered, we get hungry, we get our limitations just go on and on, and we fail to be loving as we should. But Lord, it is possible for us to make it at least our goal and to strive to achieve that, not to be demeaning of others, to be belittling of others, and to be rude towards others but to try to express ourselves in ways which are loving. And in that, certainly there will be rewards for them as they want to know more about us and then we can tell them about you. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be good with our tongues and to tell people about you while there's still time. We pray this, that you will be glorified in their lives and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First John 4, 8. First John 4, 8. God is love. God is love. And it does not say, you cannot turn that around and say God is Love is God because there's an article in front of one and not the other. And so it's impossible. God is love, but love is not God. Okay, we're going to go to break. Say goodbye to the folks online.